John chapter 7. John 7. It is great to see everyone today and some, some folks been traveling around. Good to have some folks back and um, excited to preach the word to you as we've approached and will today complete John chapter 7. And if you remember where we've been, uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem and he is there for this feast of tabernacles and it's this celebration that the Jewish people will do annually. And we're in the middle of him, you know, standing up and speaking and being around all these people for this eight-day festival there in, in Jerusalem. And so we'll continue that beginning in chapter 7, verse 32. If you're there, say word. Almost forgot. The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while I am with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. You shall seek me and shall not find me, for where I am ye cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, uh, Where will he go? that we shall not find him. Will he go into the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this that he said, Ye shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am, thither you cannot come. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believed on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the Scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night being one of them, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look. For out of Galilee ariseth no prophet, and every man went unto his own house. I'm going to break down this passage in four scenes. I'm going to call them scenes. Um, and so we'll, we'll dig in these four scenes and kind of see what we can take from it. 
I think there's some great truth here, so I hope you'll uh, listen closely this morning. First, the first scene, notice in verse 32, that the Pharisees send officers to arrest Jesus. That's scene one. Scene one is verse 32, where the Pharisees and the chief priests send uh, officers to arrest Christ. Um, we mention the Pharisees a lot, don't we? I feel like, especially if you're preaching through the Gospels, we always mention them, and is it usually a positive connotation or a negative connotation? It's negative, right? Uh, we, we, we call out the Pharisees uh, maybe as much as Jesus did, because he certainly did. And so I want to make sure that everyone kind of understands who these guys were. Many of you do, but, but just so, as a reminder, the Pharisees were this, they were this strict religious sect of Judaism that was very prominent in the time of Christ and after Christ in the early church. And the word actually, the word Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word that means to be separated. And so they were so serious about following Old Testament law and additional traditional oral laws they added to it that they, they considered themselves separated from other people. I mean, they wanted those 600 plus Old Testament laws to be followed by everyone to a T. These Pharisees, as you think about what they wanted to be and what, what they wanted other people to be, uh, my thought is this, what a heavy burden, right? I mean, if we just try to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, we fail, don't we? What a heavy burden to try to keep a thousand laws. And so I can kind of see how if you think I'm going to be that person that keeps all those laws and including these other traditions they added to it, or, or let's just put it in a, for us. If we have all these traditions that we've been taught growing up or been taught in church, and maybe some of them aren't necessarily explicitly biblical, if we try to pile all those on ourselves, it will be a burden that weighs us down. No wonder they became hypocrites if they're trying to keep this law to a T. Does that mean we should just live sinful lives? Of course not. But I think there's this balance between a pursuit of holy living and a pursuit of sincere living, where we're not just trying to burden ourselves with religious rituals for the sake of ritual. So verse 32 talks about these Pharisees. We know they hated Christ. We know they wanted to arrest him. But it also mentions in verse 32, if you look at it there, the chief priests. These were, were wicked high priests. These were you know, well-ranked, high-ranking priests. I don't know why I said wicked high, like I'm from Boston. Um, <laughs> wicked high priests, I don't know why I said that. But they're high-ranking priests who were a part of the Sanhedrin Council, which Sanhedrin is kind of like this 70-member Jewish Supreme Court, if you will. And they have a lot more than we had. We have on our Supreme Court. But so these, these, these guys, these Pharisees, these chief priests are high-ranking men of Judea, and they're men of of influence and of religion and of control and they see and they hear earlier in chapter 7 that people are starting some people are starting to believe in Christ and others are going maybe we should listen to this guy and these chief priests these Pharisees say we cannot allow this to go on any longer and so in verse 32 they tell the officers they send them out a cinnamon order go arrest this man it's time to have him arrested let's go to scene two I find scene 2 in verses 33 through 36, and I've entitled scene 2, Jesus Speaks of His Future Ascension. Jesus Speaks of His Future Ascension. Look at verse 33 with me. 
Christ is teaching them here at this feast. Imagine there's many, many people gathered around at this festival, and he says, Yet a little while I'm with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. You, you shall seek me, but you shall not find me, for where I'm going, you cannot go. And so he gives this statement, this teaching, and the people get confused, don't they? If you keep reading there, they get confused, and they're like, well, where's he going to go? Is he going to go out to the, the Greek-speaking, the Gentiles or the Greek-speaking Jews, these other people that are outside of our area? Is he going to leave this area and go outside the country and teach out there? But we know, and we can clearly understand, I think, reading verse 33 and 34, that Jesus is talking about going to his Father, right? Back to his place of glory in heaven. Would you agree with me? And, and I haven't really thought about this until I studied this week. We talk a lot in church about the life of Christ, the birth of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the teachings of Christ, uh, certainly the death of Christ. We talk about the resurrection. We even talk about his second coming, but... Is the ascension of Christ back into heaven one of the most underemphasized parts of Christ? I think it might be. I was thinking about my own life. I think I've underemphasized it, but that actually is a very important part of what Christ did. And I want to try to show that to you. We know after he was resurrected, he spent 40 days teaching and appearing to people and teaching people. But in Acts 1, you remember the story, right? He's there with his disciples, and he begins to ascend up into heaven, and they're, they're looking, right? Aren't they looking? Because... They're like, stop gazing and go do your work to the, to the disciples. And they're watching him ascend into, into heaven. So I want to give you uh, some thoughts on that. And, you know, we, we often read the Apostles' Creed, or sometimes at the end of our services. And if you look at the Apostles' Creed, I think I have it here for you. Um, it's very familiar to us, right? We understand all this part. We, we read this part. Go to the next, uh, next one. The third day he rose again from the dead. Now watch. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. The ascension of Christ is so important that our confessions and our creed, many creeds certainly um, include that in there. And Jesus says to these guys, I'm going somewhere, where I'm going you cannot come. And so I want to give you just quickly, if you're taking notes, you might want to jot these down, but four reasons that the ascension of Christ matters. Four reasons that it's important. Because you might be thinking, what's the big deal? I know about the cross. I know about the empty tomb. I know about the second coming. Why does the ascension matter? Number one, the ascension means that the earthly work of Christ for our salvation is, unlike that slide, finished. <laughs> it's finished. Watch, Kendall's going to work magic up there. The ascension means the earthly work of Christ for our salvation is finished. One time I was working a job and... And there was this one guy, and he would always like he would often do this. See, do y'all have people like that work like that are like this at your workplace? He would say, "Hey, after work today, let's all go out to eat, right? Or go to the local bar and have a drink or food or whatever." He's that guy, and and I'm like, "Why do you want to do that? We've made it. It's five o'clock. Let's go home. We're done. We're finished. We did it. <laughs> let's go home now." Is that how you are after work? I want to go home, right? It's a, it's a, I'm using the illustration to show you when Christ ascended, it was showing that his work here, his being here himself, his work here was complete. There was nothing else left for Christ to do for our salvation here, and so he ascended back to heaven. And that's a reminder for us and any of us who might think, 
uh, or who had this performance-based mentality of, I got to do this, I got to do that for Christ or to be saved. And we know Christ did it all. It is finished, and I would like to add to that, for real. It is finished for real. And the ascension shows us that. He's completed it. The second thing about the ascension is that it allows Christ to begin and continue his present work. The ascension allowed Christ to, to begin and continue the work he's presently doing. Did any of y'all watch the uh, Johnny Depp trial? Um, some loved it, some could care less. I didn't really care, but my wife was into it. And one comment I remember her making was that Johnny Depp's lawyers were really good and Amber Heard's lawyers were not good, were really bad. And she was like, that was a big, a big part of it. Not, obviously, the evidence is a big part of it, but the, the lawyers she thought were night and day and how good they were. So what is... Was that doing anything? What's Christ doing for us now? The scripture says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, that he always lives to make intercession for his people. So Christ ascended to heaven, he sat at the right hand of God, and he is making intercession for us. Remember when Satan went before the Lord to accuse Job of, you know, not being holy or, or whatever? Imagine if Satan were to go to God on our behalf and say, that Kelby is a rotten sinner. Christ is sitting there, isn't he? Ever making intercession for us. He is our advocate. 1 John 2 says, We have an advocate with the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. There's an old hymn. We need to find it and sing it. It's, I love the title. It's called, What Though the Accuser Roar? Which, cool title. And here's one of the parts of the song. It says, What though the accuser roar of ills or sins that I have done, I know them well and thousands more, Jehovah findeth none. Christ Jesus, even now, is our intercessor before the Father. And I want to remind you, no other saint is our intercessor. Not Mary, the mother of Jesus, she's not our intercessor. Jesus Christ is the one and only intercessor. Christ is working for his people even now. Yes, he finished it then, but he's still working for us even now. The third reason the ascension is important is and I think this might be the most common thing you might think of is it allowed for the spirit to come live within us the ascension allowed for the spirit to come and Jesus said this on at least two occasions John 14 6 he said I'll ask the father and he will give you another counselor who will be with you forever and then I think even more plainly in John 16 7 Jesus said I tell you the truth it's for your benefit that I go away because if I don't go away the counselor will not come to you if I go, I will send him to you. We know that when God left, uh, early in Acts, the Holy Spirit came and he now lives and reigns in us. I want to throw this side note in there. The Holy Spirit always existed. He's God. He's always existed. By the way, the Holy Spirit worked. The Holy Spirit was working in the Old Testament. But now he lives in us. And Christ's ascension allowed that to, to be. Let me give you the fourth one, and this is the final reason I think the ascension is important. It assures us that we have an eternal home waiting for us. Uh, the Hollaberg Catechism says, How does Christ's ascension benefit us? Answer, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ our head will take also us up, his members, to be with himself. 
And I'm reminded of John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you. You've heard this text, right? If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you. That where I am, there you may also be. It's this pledge of Christ. And the ascension is a part of, a, a part of that. So think about it. Our lives and the lives of Christianity is different because of the ascension of Christ. Because of the ascension, the Holy Spirit reigns in us and guides us and helps us understand this word, helps us live our lives. Because of the ascension, Christ is pleading our case before the Father. I'm reminded of Romans 8.34, who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised and he is seated at the right hand of God and interceding for us. The ascension means that, that he will one day take us to be with him, and the ascension means that his earthly work for our salvation is complete. It's done. So if you're here today and you don't know Christ, and you're thinking, what do I need to do, and how can I get my life together? And the answer is you can't get your life together, right? Christ did the work. You must trust in him. Let's go back to scene two. As Jesus commented about his ascension they didn't get it did they they didn't get it i'm thankful we have the revelation the word of god that we might understand it but they didn't let's look at scene three this is verses 37 through 44 and here we see that jesus gives an invitation he gives invitation so let me explain something about this feast um, that we know it was an eight-day festival where people would live in makeshift tents and they would make sacrifices and have times of prayer. And the whole thing is to commemorate what God had done in the Old Testament when he provided for them in the wilderness. So we know that God gave them manna, right, food from heaven. But we also know that God gave them water from a rock when they were thirsty. Remember that story, bringing water from a rock to, to give them something to drink? So what they would do in this festival throughout the week, priests would have this... It's almost like a parade where priests would go down to the pool, local pool, and they would get, they would use these very fancy, from what I've read, very fancy tubs, basically, or buckets, and they would scoop out the water, and they would bring it back to the temple area and pour it out. And the whole idea, it was, it was a picture of God providing the water for the people in the wilderness. And so, like we do the Lord's Supper, right, and that's a representation of the body and blood of Christ, they would do this water as a representation of what God did for them. And so imagine that. Imagine you're standing around watching this, and you know, the, you know the meaning behind that. You know this water being poured out means that it's there, and, that, and it's a representation of Christ, of God providing the Old Testament. So in the midst of that, many people believe in the midst of them actually pouring the water out, Jesus stands up in verse 37, the last day of the feast, the water's there, and Jesus says this, If any man thirst... Let him go over there to the pool and drink. If any man thirsts, no, he says this, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. An invitation from Christ to this people, come to me, he says. Notice, notice who he invites in verse 37. Who's the invite? Any man. If any man thirsts. So it doesn't matter what Jew or Gentile, what 
political party, what gender, what race. If any man will come to me, he will be satisfied. But then notice, there is a stipulation here. What's the person, what, what must the person do first? Be thirsty. Recognize their thirst. And I think this is a good application for, for salvation, that, that to be saved, God puts in a person this realization that they are lost, they are sinners, that they are undone. And God begins to work in the heart of a sinner through the gospel to show them that they have a need, a hunger, or thirst for something outside themselves, and that is, of course, Christ. Is this the first time in John that Jesus has talked about being water? It's not, is it? John 4, in a private conversation with the woman at the well, he talked about being the living water. And now publicly he says, if you're thirsty, come to me, believe on me. And I'll change your life. Essentially, in verse 38, Jesus is saying, If you will put your trust in me and throw me in your heart, life and abundance will flow from your life. So hearing this, in the remainder of this scene, of 39 through 44, the people begin to wonder, is he really the Messiah? Is this man the Messiah? And they begin to debate, if you'll read that there, they'll begin to debate where he's from and you know, his origin, and they can't just trust this man who's standing before them, giving them truth. They are, they're letting other things kind of block their view. It's kind of like the person who comes to church and says, well, I would give my life to Christ, but I got this going on, or I got that going on. They're letting these other things stop them from seeing Christ and who he truly, truly was. They weren't sure about his, where he was from. But verse 44 says, some of them would take him, but no one laid a hand on him. Let's go to our final scene, scene four. I want to read this to you again. It says, Then came the officers to the chief priests and the Pharisees. So the officers went to arrest Jesus. They heard him teach. They came back. They said, The Pharisees said, uh, Where's Jesus? Why didn't you bring him back? Your job was to go arrest him. Why didn't you bring him back? And look what they said, verse 46. They said this. We've never heard anyone ever speak like this man. I love that line. That's probably my favorite line in this text. We went to arrest him, but we heard him speak, and we were blown away. We've never heard anyone. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine hearing Jesus teach? We've never heard anyone speak. My fourth scene is this. It was not yet God's sovereign time for Jesus to be arrested. It was not yet... God's sovereign time. And we, we've seen that already in this, this section, this chapter of Scripture. There's not yet his time. His time was still several months away. Verse 47, so they answered, the Pharisees, are you deceived? They're talking to these officers. Are you deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? Verse 48 to me is like they're saying to him, to those officers, are you guys dumb? Right? Are you, are you foolish? Did, did he fool you? None of us have believed. What are you doing? Verse 49, but this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Yeah, you don't even know. These people don't know the law. They're, they don't know. Verse 50, our old friend Nicodemus from John chapter 3 steps up and says, can we judge this man before we hear what he does? And he brings out their own law kind of against them. It, shouldn't we actually listen to him and then, of course, verse 52, they, 
They start bashing Nicodemus as, as well. So, what do we gain from these four scenes and this whole section? I've enjoyed this chapter 7 because it's this interesting thing that they're all at this festival, they're all at this feast, and Jesus decides to stand up and make a few statements, but very powerful statements. And from this, we can learn, and I hope we've learned, that Christ is an authoritative teacher. When he spoke, people listened. And as God worked in people's hearts, people believed in him. But even some who didn't believe still recognized he was a master teacher. But his authority, his authority led many to hate him even more, right? To, to not be able to, they could not stand him. And so we learn in this chapter that Christ is the authoritative teacher. We've learned that he is the living water. We've learned he's the glorious son of God who ascended back to heaven. So how can we know this Christ better? I want to conclude a little different. And I want to give you a passage here to look at from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 2. How can we know this Christ better is my question as we conclude. How can we know him better? I think in this room as I look across and know you guys that we all in here would say, yes, I would like to know Jesus better. I think every one of us would say that. Proverbs 2 gives us some insight into this. It says, my son, if, and notice, I'm going to give you a few of these. Here's the first one. If you receive my words, you want to know Christ better, if you might want to make a mark or a note or underline. One way is to receive his words. If we as a church are going to know the Christ of John 7, it will be through receiving the word. This word is how Jesus speaks. He is not going to come in here before us like he did in John 7 and stand up and speak. His word is how he speaks. We must receive his words. Look at the next thing it says. It says also, uh, back in verse 1 again, treasure up my commandments. Receive my words and treasure my commandments. So church, I'm telling you, not only must we receive it, but to treasure it. The word must be meaningful to us. There are things in our lives we treasure. Maybe it's your truck, maybe it's your house, hopefully it's your children, uh, maybe it's your boat, whatever. We treasure certain things in life. Well, we need to treasure, verse 2, the Word of God. And by the way, I don't know that you can actually really fake that. Because if you treasure it, you're going to talk about it sometimes. You're going to find yourself talking about it. So receive His words, treasure up His commandments, verse 2. It says to make your ear attentive to wisdom. Make your ear attentive. Do you put yourself in position daily by your own reading or Wednesday night here at church on small groups, Sunday morning as we come for the preaching, listening to godly podcasts or sermons at home or while you're driving, do you put your ear in a place to hear wisdom? Or how about this, just speaking to a godly parent or grandparent or friend who can give you wisdom. Again in verse 2, incline your heart to understanding. Not just our ear, but our hearts. Verse 3, says, call out for insight. I think it's biblical to say to God, God, give me understanding. Give me insight. Help me to know your word 
better. Verse 4, not only to call out and raise your voice for it, but seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure. To really care enough about hearing what Jesus says that we would dive in to his word. And then verse 5 and 6 kind of conclude this. If you do these things, you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. I didn't put this up there, but then I also think about the next chapter, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. I pray that the Jesus of John 7 would be, um, I pray that he is your Lord, he is your Savior, and I pray that we would desire to know him more through his holy word. Let's pray.